All right, welcome this afternoon. Uh, this is Dan Marioski, physical therapist from Spooner Physical Therapy. I'm a part of our practice performance team here. I'm joined today by my uh, fellow colleague, Paul Gaiano, who is our leader in practice performance. And we're very excited to kick off our podcast episodes uh, with a very exciting uh, topic following up from our most recent treat tanks uh, held throughout the company in the last month. Um, We've gained some great energy, and we feel that a discussion on uh, stability versus mobility can be uh, greatly influential for our treating clinicians and how they approach patients, uh, as well as formulating their PT diagnosis. Very excited to begin this, and I'm going to hand it over to Paul to introduce our guests who are joining us today. Thank you, Dan. So today to join us, we have Andrew Walquist from uh, the Fountain Hills Clinic, and then the one and only Mr. Tim Spooner to help us discuss, again, like Dan said, mobility versus stability. I know that's always a great question for a number of therapists as far as where do you treat first, where do you start, and what are we actually looking for with those two topics? So recently in the August version of the PT Journal, uh, there was a perspective article published uh, titled Critical and Theoretical Perspective on Scapular Stabilization. What does it really mean and are we on the right track? And within this article they brought up a number of great points um, that are going to help uh, facilitate our discussion today. And the first point is the definition of stability. Uh, they defined the fundamental definition of stability as the degree to which a system can return to an orientation or movement trajectory after a perturbation. So Andrew, I'm going to start with you. Um, talk to me a little bit about what that definition means to you and how that impacts your ability to uh, treat a patient. I do overall like the definition of, of stabilization here. I feel like it gives us a good foundational idea about that there's some sort of movement involved in stability. I feel like that's a disconnect that a lot of people I talk to, that they put two fronts on the table, they say you have mobility or you have stability, but it's really hard to define one without also including the other. So I like the fact that the definition of stability, that there's movement in it, and because stability is not the same thing as immobility, that stability, you need to have proper controlled mobility. What are your thoughts, Tim? I, I agree with you. I mean, if you have perfect stability that lacks mobility, you have a corpse. And we're not training people to be corpses, we're training them to be uh, actual functional human beings. And as such, I, I, I'm thinking of the word dynamic in front of it. We talk about dynamic stabilization, and I think that dynamic and movement going along with stabilization add to the discussion that you have to have motor control, um, you have to have um, obviously some mobility uh, it, as part of that stabilization um, to turn on the entire system. And I, I think back to my early days of lumbar stabilization where they were teaching, I was trying to learn how to keep a lumbar spine perfectly stable um, in a supine position that unfortunately had no validation when I had the person stand up and, and translate into upright function. So it, it was quickly, in, in my career, proven false that that is not an effective treatment method. 
I like the point you guys bring up that there's some sort of movement uh, within the stability, that dynamic component. But looking at it, even if we talk about what is a static stability, do you guys feel there is a force or a movement or something being imparted even in a static position that might cause that dynamic challenge to the body? Yeah, I actually think so. I mean, I think someone had a definition of strength in, um, in, the, in the gift arena, the Great Institute arena, that, that the ability to be strong is to have this internal tension in, in an external environment to be able to produce something. And so I feel like that is a that there needs to be some sort of static stability component because we need to provide this internal tension. If we can't do that, we're just this gooey mess on the ground. We have to be able to hold something. We gotta be something, and that definitely in standing. It's kind of how we trust our patients to do certain things. If they have no business being able to sit in control, can we expect them to stand controlled, less walking in a controlled fashion? You have to start with some sort of internal stability component before you demand an external stability component. So, and that also brings up another component. Being stable doesn't necessarily mean strong per se. That's also a big differentiation that we can address in this. Yeah, so that actually brings up a great point. Like, you talk about having an adequate amount of strength, but do we really have isolated muscle weakness? Or what's the cause of our isolated muscle weakness? I mean, to me, that's a misnomer. Number one, I think strength is probably one of the most overutilized thing in our profession. We think of strength and we measure it through a manual muscle test, which tells me very little information um, as such. And if I isolate that muscle and I get a weak grade, that doesn't mean he may not be functional and be able to stabilize something uh, when his other friends are turned on. So um, I, I just personally strength measurements uh, have, have very little validity in, in my eyes. Going back to Paul's earlier point on can I be still and have stabilization, um, if I impart a force to something and it maintains its um, point in space, then it did have to resist that force. Going back to basic science, I applied a force to it and it did not, um, uh, did not move, I had to absorb that force somehow. So yes, it, it, it does have dynamic stability and you can train it, which is actually one of the um, early rehabilitation techniques that you can use with um, something that doesn't want to move, but I want to apply force to stimulate the proprioceptors, which you would do in early stabilization um, and in some painful motions that don't like a certain plane of motion. I can apply stress to the motion, but not motion with stress. So back to the definition then. So do we say that we agree with that, with that definition that it's the degree to which a system can return to orientation or movement trajectory after a perturbation? In a sense, we're all talking about that it's that there's a mobility component. Um, a definition I was talking with a colleague just a couple weeks ago, we kind of like the idea if, if mobility is inherent in the definition of stability, can we kind of use those two terms? So we came up with the definition that stability, and I want to get your guys' take on this, stability could be more controlled or stable mobility. So stability is stable mobility, would you agree? 
So I think stability is a pretty good way to describe it. Uh, if we look at the definition of back, what it says, the uh, degree in which a system can return to orientation or movement trajectory after perturbation. If I look at it from just a simple movement trajectory standpoint, if I'm walking and moving through that motion of walking, can I control myself through that eccentric control or that controlled fall the walking actually is? So is it able to stabilize through the movement pattern? Yes, I think that's a very good definition of it because it doesn't always have to be thinking about a perturbation as in someone actually pushed me or imparted a new force into the chain. Is it just simply the ability to control myself through the motion that I'm actually doing functionally, making sure that is within the appropriate movement pattern and not any sort of aberrant movement that would fall outside of the desired motion. So with these definitions, so now that we clear up stability definition, what does that look like in your guys' day-to-day treating life as a clinician? Well, for me, when I'm looking at stability, I'm kind of looking at is there a disruption of one of three things? Is there a disruption of coordination? Is there a disruption of timing? Or is there a disruption of symmetry in their movements? And if I see one of those three things, I personally feel that there is a stability issue. Now, you can look at that also within the entire arc of their available range of motion because they could be stable in the first say 30 degrees of shoulder flexion but when they get above 30 degrees of shoulder flexion they become unstable because they either have improper timing or lack of coordination perhaps because we haven't trained them in that available range of motion they're only being trained in a controlled or limited motion if we look back at the tree tank we just had, we talked about shoulder flexion and all the different components across the entire body that are required for shoulder flexion to occur appropriately. The next step is saying, all right, well, if we have all those available, is the body actually taking advantage of said movement? I think Dan brings up a hugely important point when we talk about the initiation. Uh, we look at body and how it should move. Everything typically depends on activity, but typically we look at something initiating proximally and moving out distally. So for example, do we have the scapula going into that appropriate upper rotation at the correct time, or are things initiating much more early in the movement pattern than they should? Whether that is from lack of a foundational core or a lack of motor control, whatever be the cause, making sure things are initiating in the appropriate order and also controlling through the appropriate motion that is desired across the entire kinetic chain, I think that's when you have the appropriate stability. So having that neuromuscular control being both the movement pattern and the appropriate time for it to occur. Would you say that somebody could have dysfunctional timing and firing of motions but still be stable? Oh, definitely. Um, I think we see in a lot of research, we look at what pain does to the body. We know that it changes muscle firing patterns. For example, low back pain is a very common uh, uh, diagnosis for us to see. We know when there's low back pain, adductor longus stays tight longer than it should be. Hamstring fires more quickly than it should. These things are going to change movement mechanics and pattern. Is that going to make the person unable to maintain its appropriate trajectory and path or go against an actual perturbation? Not particularly. It might make it quite challenging, especially if it's going to change pelvic orientation and, and go across the entire chain, but it doesn't guarantee their inability to actually stabilize through that motion. So are we okay if they have functional dysfunction and what I mean by that this is something that Tim and I were talking about before we started recording was are we okay if they 
can do what they need to do, but we see biomechanical deficiencies. I think this goes into a lot of the grooving component. I think something Tim talks about a lot. So Tim, do you have any thoughts on that functional dysfunction? The, I, I think it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm caught up in can I test it? Can I test it and retest it? And is this more of a clinical versus a, um, uh, a, a scientific study term that, that, I'm, that I'm running into? Because the patient in front of me just wants to be better. And they may not know that they have dysfunction. It is my job as a biomechanical specialist to understand that they do have something that could lead to a future injury. But today may not be their day that they really want to address that. I've cleared up some of their symptoms and, and helped them along. Now I may have a high level athlete in that wants to perform better and that functional dysfunction is something that I have to clean up. So it's my knowledge of that movement and of that dysfunction. And when you were going through the, the three terms you were thinking of, all that kept ringing in my head was um, proprioceptive turn on. What, what tissues and what, what tension is being placed through the body to turn things on to, you know, to create that dynamic control. So I, there, there's, there's lots of different factors. I think, it could, I think it depends on the setting that you're evaluating that within. Which is a good question, then how do we evaluate it? I know most therapists will listen and wonder, right, how do I incorporate this? So how do you test for stability, or what are you looking for across the movement pattern? Uh, it, it, I guess it would depend on, on, you know, on what I want that person to do. So I would have them do a functional task, and there, there are layers of complexity to it. And I, I could have them say, I'm, I'm going to have them just do a basic squat and they could squat and they could squat to a certain height and that gave me that level of function. Now, um, I may have noticed that certain things happened while they were squatting that um, may lead itself to a functional dysfunction. They may not have had enough internal hip rotation. Um, and so as such as they were going down, their toes tended to um, toe out to give them the required motion to get into that movement. So. I think there's there's normal, abnormal. Then I think there's function, dysfunction. Then I think there's efficiency and another level that is even another layer of that that speaks to the complexity of some of these movements and how much we need to clean up when we're treating someone. So let's go back to that example of adequate squat depth, but you see that extra rotation of one of their toes. Because it's very common for us to see that. Definitely. So is that an underlying mobility issue or is that an underlying stability issue? Do we have to answer that? Because it could be both. And, and more often than not, um, you know, the, you, you have a chicken or the egg phenomena here where you are chasing one and, you know, versus the other. And, you know, I think this is, this is kind of, not to get political, but this is kind of like everything has to be right and wrong. Or do we just have to do what's, a, what's faced in front of us today, where today that person may need a little bit more motion? And, and, you know, if I get more motion, they may need more stability. I don't think we have to answer a question perfectly because I'm not trying to train the patient to look like the model on the wall. I'm trying to get the person in front of me to function at their level that they want to today.
so that goes again. Oh, so that goes kind of with your analysis analogy of saying if they're just stable but no mobility, that they are basically a corpse. Then you want to get them in the least corpse-like state possible. <laughs> Moving through space. We have uh, a new functional scale, folks. Yeah. The corpse scale. I'm like not the corpse pose. That was a that was a statement. I don't know if it's a treatment philosophy. <laughs> But I like the fact that, that you're applying a, a motion to it, and you're saying yep. that there's not so much of a difference of maybe stability and mobility exercise, or just saying, oh, this is what you're going to do for mobility, this is what you're going to be doing for stability. You're saying your treatments look a lot of, alike. There, there's, that line is not separated. It's not right or wrong. You're right. saying it's, it's you, movement. You move. Right. I, I, movement, and guess what? It requires both components. So you're so, utilizing a component of, I may give them a little motion, with an which external load. In, which creates instability. Right, and, you're, and then you may give them an external load, which could create some inherent stability while you're training their mobility, correct? Mm -hmm. You know, give them a five-pound dumbbell weight in one hand and a two-pound dumbbell weight in the other hand, right? You're going to create this asymmetry, which is something I said I look for as symmetry in movement, but when we're talking through this, I can see how creating an asymmetrical load could gain both mobility aspect as well as a stability aspect. And I, I, as I sit here and I listen to us think, I listen to us talk and I'm thinking. Yeah, I can't get out of my own head. Uh, that That's something for our clinicians that they really need to, to stress is not just focusing on one or the other. You know, I mean, going back to the lovely lumbar stabilization classification, right? Like we're going to teach somebody to activate their transversus abdominis in a hook line position. And the only time they're in a hook line position is first thing in the morning, right? To get out of bed. And we're going to spend 30 to 40 minutes of their treatment program in this hook line position. Because that's what makes someone stable, Dan. Right, absolutely. <laughs> you know, versus putting them up and getting the force of gravity coming down through their well, spine. And I think we have to be careful because there are there are still some benefits to, te to teaching and exercise absolutely. in that position. But we have to understand what it is truly what we truly are teaching them because it's not lumbar stabilization. We're just using the supine position to activate some muscles that may be. Or a, or a protected joint that may be painful in another starting position. Yep, and I, and I think that you, you tie that back into it's a functional activity. They yep. have to be able to get out of bed. So I'm not saying that putting somebody in hook line isn't a good idea because their biggest complaint may be, I can't get out of bed. So you better put them in a position if they can tolerate it and be successful to address their issue if you're going to help them for that day. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be always tied back to that one functional activity because there are some people that really can't or know even how to go through the motor programming to activate those muscles before you get them in that position. They might get out of bed just fine because they roll over, you know, but they don't, you don't, you can't teach them that specific activity till you put them in that position. So that's where we get into position changes and how your body senses it to what they can activate, what sequence that they can activate it. But where I feel like some people don't carry it through, that they stick with the motion and that body position that they're very successful with, but they don't challenge themselves in that position that they ultimately want or the position that they'll ultimately need to have success with to go back to work, to participate in their sport. 
I think that ties something very nicely together. You talk about challenging within the, the motion for whatever the desired goal is. And Tim also brought up the point, why do we have to answer whether it's a mobility or a stability component? We look at the entire body. The body always works together. Every part needs to do its piece of the equation. And same thing with mobility and stability. They don't operate in isolation. They operate together. So if I have a person who has a proper motion and I put them into the position or functional activity or whatever challenge it is they need to accomplish, we've seen in research if you get the body into the right spot, it's going to improve muscle firing. So if we have the mobility we need, then we're also going to improve what's actually turning on, actually activating for the muscles. And then as we're training that individual through that challenge they need to accomplish, we're going to be hitting a little bit of both as work on the mobility and stability component of that motion. So we're, it seems like we're kind of addressing this from one end of the spectrum, kind of starting with the stability. That's kind of where we started and talking about how we add mobility to a stable environment. What about the opposite end of the spectrum? What about, you know, that bendy-windy that comes in and that's very floppy and that you know that she has that kind of mobility in a way. I mean, we're talking about making a stable system more stable, but what about some of that with a hypermobility component? Yeah, so early on in my time here in Spooner, um, I was co-treating with Tim, and he, I had that patient who came in that was very hypermobile, and he had a great analogy that I still use to, that, to this day, which is, you're in a jello mold, and right now, your jello is hitting every extreme of the side of that mold. What I want to do over time is I actually want to take that mold and I want to be able to get to the point where you can move successfully without banging into that mold on a regular basis. Because when you bang into that mold, you're getting to the end range and you're causing tissue breakdown. Which I thought was something that was really important because that patient was like, well, I can get in every position in yoga. Tim was like, okay, well, can you get out of it? And she's like, well, it's really hard for me to get out of some of those positions because she was getting so far into the extreme of her motion that she was causing tissue breakdown and didn't have any dynamic stability to control her excessive mobility. So I think in that regard, developing an exercise program for that person is challenging because they want to go to the extremes of their motion, right? Because that's sometimes where their body says that they can be successful or minimize a symptom but having the expertise and the comfort to rein that back is challenging. Um, so I'd like to hear some of your guys' thoughts on, on how you address that. I think one thing to look at too, and one thing that was always a challenge for me, was not to just see that bendy wendy come through and automatically assume that everything is hypermobile. Uh, like we talked about in the tree tank, just because someone has full overhead shoulder flexion, let's say they have excessive overhead shoulder flexion, they can go well, they're at 190, 200 degrees, that doesn't guarantee that everything is truly moving the way it should, and it doesn't guarantee a lack of hypomobility across somewhere in the chain, whether it be hip, whether it be scapula, whatever it is, you have to make sure that you're looking at the entire picture of the individual and not just automatically assume, wow, this person moves, all right, stability program, let's go, let's do it. Mm. Let's make sure we're truly addressing the entire chain to see what that person is doing their job appropriately. Then again, as we get everything doing what it's supposed to and get the body moving how it's relatively designed to, you'll see muscle firing patterns improve and help you stabilize within that motion more appropriately than in the lack of every body part doing what it's designed for. Yeah, because I would say outside of certain diagnoses like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, 
when somebody comes in with a relative hypermobility, they probably have a hypomobility someplace else in their chain that their body is then overcorrecting and creating excessive movement to be able to function the way that they need to function. It goes back to that functional dysfunction that Tim talked about earlier. But Tim, if you want to expand upon. No, I, I think you guys have hit on the major opponents here. Again, it's a, I'm, I'm thinking and hearing a spectrum here of, of, a, of, of hypermobility. And you're essentially telling somebody who is flexible, I'm going to try and treat, I'm going to try and train you to be stiff, stiffer than you have, than we have, um, which is not unlike if I'm taking a stiff joint and giving it more mobility, I'm taking a mobile joint and creating some stiffness. They have to change the paradigm of where they think their limb should go under certain conditions. So whether that's throwing or striking a volleyball, they have to understand that that excessive external rotation may be putting ex may, I may not have the control that I need at that range. And to Dan's earlier point, at the end range is generally where you're going to cause injuries. And so I, I need to train them more in the mid-range. Um, you know, unfortunately, the, the challenge is that um, you know, the only predictor of, of stiffness, I think, is age. Um, I, I don't know if we can create a stiffer joint. Um, we've seen some surgical techniques try, but I don't know if they're necessarily uh, been shown successful well, over time either. I, I remember back to uh, a continuing education course that I taught or that I uh, attended by um, Greg Johnson of Institute of Physical Art. And when he was in San Francisco, he told a story of working with the San Francisco ballet dancers. And there was a handful of dancers that kept getting hamstring injuries. Well, if you know anything about ballet, what do they have to do? They have to be extremely flexible. They basically have to get their kneecap to their face regularly while they're standing on their tiptoe, right? So they feel that they have to stretch all the time. So he did a little study over one summer where he took all the individuals that had a hamstring injury and he split them in half. And half of them, he let them do whatever they needed to do. And the other half, he took and he did some different functional mobilizations. And he basically did exactly what Tim just said, which was avoid extremes, train them in mid-range, and then the next ballet season, surprisingly enough, the people who went through his training did not have hamstring injuries. The people who continued to stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch had recurrent hamstring injuries. So I think training in that mid-range and kind of resetting their set point of what they perceive as full range of motion is a really valuable uh, you know, nugget. I want to ask on a follow-up to Tim there, I, like, I thought it was interesting the use of the term stiffness, so trying to create a more stiff joint. I think of stiffness, I think of uh, de decreased extensibility or an actual tissue contraction happening, but I don't think that's how you're referring this to. So Tim, what, when you're saying trying to create a stiffness, what are you actually trying to achieve within that individual? That the proprioceptive protective reaction of the joint turns on earlier. I think that's an important point to discern here. If we look back at the definition we're talking about, the ability of the body to I mean, control the system to return to orientation um, when there's either a movement director or after perturbation. Again, we're talking about that proprioceptive feedback, that stability feedback. We're not actually creating stiffness through changing the tissue quality of 
the individual. You're changing the stiffness through the ability for them to actually respond to the challenge, dynamic, static, whatever, however you want to define that, and what that joint's actually going to be doing. So big picture, it seems like we're not even really talking about, you know, off the surface, you might think that this podcast might be a little bit more about mobility, and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be about stretching or stability, thinking about strength. I'm not hearing you guys use those terms too much today. And if anything, it's more control and proprioception and all these things, because that's how you really get to that mobility and stability togetherness and that's where you know Gary Gray loves to say that's the most ability and that's how you get someone to their peak ability. I was just talking to one uh, individual who went to the most recent chain reaction course and he was saying how much one he loved it was pumped about it but he really liked that Gary talked about being able to go into a room with no equipment and take someone through an entire exercise program. If I look at 99.9 percent of patients that come through whatever goal they have the vast majority of things are body resistance. Whether that individual is a high-level athlete, say a basketball player, a track athlete, a tennis player, yes, there's a racket, there's a volleyball, there's a basketball, there's certain things incorporated, but there's nothing high weight, heavy weight. If I'm training an Olympic lifter, yes, we have a different sort of talk about here. But for the most part, whether it's sitting, standing, walking, running, jumping, jogging, the vast majority of this is the ability to control your own body. And I think that comes back to a very important point that, like we said, we're not looking at strengthening things. We're not looking at getting through stretches going, but can you control your own body for whatever you need to accomplish? Yeah, and I'm going to go back to Dan talked about the jello mold. And I, and I still use that analogy. I, t- I probably speak about it a little bit differently than when you started, but I'll drop someone into a jello mold that is eight feet high. Um, and so if they do not move, they will suffocate and die. What if it's Yao Ming? It's, what's that? What if it's Yao Ming? Um, he stands on his tiptoes. Then, then, then we do have to extend it just a little bit. Okay, just but try. at eight feet, I, I do believe I have him covered from under his He's head. He's got really big feet. <laughs> He's got on his tiptoes sorry, sorry, and probably got out eight, eight feet really <laughs> yeah. So the... He's only seven six. He is. Manu Bowl then, seven seven. Still not close. I don't know who's taller than that. Sorry, I got nothing. So the uh, so what I tell them when they get in is that they have to they have to move to clear their head, and when you talk about movement for life, I'm pushing that jello out in all directions. That's a movement exercise. So it actually looks if if I'm doing that in a rhythmic manner, it could look like tai chi, um, it could look like a lunge matrix, it could look like um, I'm just trying to clear space around my head. I tell them that the jello has a 24 hour um, memory so that if they push it out every 24 hours they can maintain it but it, after 24 hours it starts to ease back in so it requires them to constantly be moving and active or it will it will send come back to them and they'll lose that level of function so I want them to clear space around their body in this huge vat of jello that is equal to what their mind says their function is that sounds a little bit like grooving. Do move. Yeah, absolutely. So to pick your mind a little bit deeper, so what's a home exercise program for, you pick the diagnosis, to where you help someone groove that wants to get better with walking. Let's, let's start that with that functional task. Okay. Um, and function, so I have some type of, Lower extremity injury or low back injury? Sure, let's say low back. That's okay, an easy so, one to pick on. Yep, so we have a low back injury that wants to walk with a greater distance, greater stride, greater speed, 
um, maybe just more efficiently. You know, it, it takes too much energy and so they can't go as far. Um, all of that, if I'm going to group that, I have to, I have to number one, know where their um, status is today. Um, I have to understand that I need to train them in all three planes. Um, I am probably going to give them something in three different starting positions that will affect their walking motion. Okay, probably the last thing I'll have them do is walk. Okay, I'm going to have them do other things, and their walking will be their enjoyment, their life, and their test. But their training, their grooving, will be three other starting positions that function that go after maybe calf or ankle function or go after leg strength or go after something else. So it's not your traditional, let's go home, do your knee to chest exercise, stretches, do a couple crunches. Yep. Seems a Probably little bit Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> I just want to thank our research department really quickly. Um, there is one man that would be able to survive Tim's jello tank. Uh, he's Turkish. His name is Sultan I believe, and he's 8 feet 2.8 inches. So thank you, Research Department, for that information. <laughs> Much appreciated. Circling back around to mobility versus stability in our philosophical discussion, like Andrew mentioned, we didn't really talk about increasing range of motion or increasing strength. We really talked about motor control, right? Sure. Providing dynamic stability or dynamic control really across the body regardless of where that force is coming from whether it's coming from the ground whether it's coming from internal or whether it's coming from external with a lever arm or a load sure let's look, let's look at the origins of our profession okay Going back to the restoration period. Well, sorry, you know, the other three of us sitting around this table weren't around when our <laughs> profession started, so you're really going to have to help fill us in on this, too. Well, maybe the research department can go back and look at that as well. <laughs> I'll get him on the horn. Because, okay. <laughs> so, you know, restoration, treating post-war uh, post uh, victims, treating post-polio symptoms that needed passive range of motion to maintain things when they're going through an ac acute cycle. But if we look at human development and human movement, and we look at NDT, and how a child learns how to move developmentally, do we do range of motion on those individuals? No, we, we don't. We train them and give them things to do, tasks to do, and through learning and repetitive movement and uh, giving them some challenges, they learn how to hold their head up, how to reach, how to put weight through one arm, how to eventually get into a quadruped and, and, and progress through movement. That is movement. I, I'm not sure where passive range of motion and stretching the hamstrings ever got into our dialogue, but I, I'm, I'm looking for it in the annals of science and not finding a really valid reason why we should grab a limb and then walk into the next room with it. And I think we also, as Dan said, we're really talking a lot about proprioception and uh, neuromuscular control components. We talked about this very briefly in the tree tank, but said that when we're looking at a shoulder specifically, maybe post-labor repair, we know that that's an injury. Surgery is an injury, a trauma. We know when there's trauma, you lose neuromuscular control and you lose proprioceptive abilities. Uh, Tim, we've talked about this a little bit, but how do you like to bring that back? What has been shown to be an effective way to bring that back? And when can you start that within the rehabilitation timeframe? 
I, I think the proprioceptive system is always available. So that starts your first encounter. Um, and, and it starts in a way that has, that makes sure that there's a, it's physiologically safe, but there's no reason you can't start turning on that system. Even if I have to protect a limb, I can still use the rest of the body through a chain reaction to affect the proprioceptive system up into the left shoulder by moving the right foot. And I think research has just definitely justified that the earlier you can get that going, the more effective your outcomes are going to be, or at least in a time frame component. So like you said, there's a lot of creative ways you can get that system woken back up quickly and effectively within the immediate uh, first visit of that patient. Well, and I think also that you're going to then start to provide an inherent joint stability, which when you have an inherent joint stability, wouldn't that directly uh, assist in protecting the tissue during its early healing stages because it's not going to be going through an excessive motion which is then going to create micro trauma across the area that the doctor just fixed um, so I think that's something that's huge talking about doing a, a lunge matrix when somebody's in their sling to provide chain reaction proprioceptive input into that surgically repaired shoulder um, to provide dynamic stability across the surgically repaired shoulder. Sure. Thankfully, I see a trend of that changing in the, in the medical industry where everyone was said rice is the way to go. You rest, you ice, you compress, you elevate, static, 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 static. Now it seems like more people, and thank God for us physical therapists, that they're saying, no, you've you got to kind of move. I mean, if you look at any other mammal, you know, when they get injured, what, are the, what do you see them doing? You know that that animal is not going the right direction if they lie down after an injury. They might not wake up again. They said the predator's still on their tail. Absolutely. They move. Even with an injury, they move. It's amazing the, the stories I hear from hunters that, that, that down an elk and then whenever they're processing the meat, they find these big old spearheads in them and from, oh, not from, from sorry, arrowheads in them from, from previous other hunters. And, and did that elk go and, and to the side of the road and, and lie down and, and R-I-C-E? No, kept on moving. And I think that it's through the movement that we can really help further rehabilitate people. That hunter really needs to practice their accuracy. If they're <laughs> um, well, I think that we've had a great philosophical debate. Um, hopefully our listeners will feel some benefit from this. And, you know, in summary, you know, we talked a lot about providing dynamic control, increasing that proprioceptive input um, through the system, utilizing their own body, um, and, and, and occasionally using external uh, forces as necessary. Um, but I think, you know, our listeners will realize that mobility and stability are married, that you can't have one without the other. And when it comes time to treating a patient, you need to look at what they can do and what they need to be able to do and create a plan that is going to help create um, a stepwise progression to get them there, but also the freedom to allow them to get them there. That sometimes creating restraints is the biggest issue in a patient's rehabilitation instead of saying, you know what, let's just go out and move and train and do something and see how you respond. Um, I'd like to thank T 
Tim and Andrew for joining us today, um, as well as Paul. I look forward to the video series that we're going to put out here in October, as well as future podcasts that we'll be hosting. Um, please submit feedback to all four of us on this, and we will do our best to improve upon future podcasts as well as additional topics. Um, Tim and Andrew, thank you very much. Very much appreciated. Hopefully this was a little fun and something different to get our minds stimulated as well as get our therapist's minds stimulated. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Mm -hmm.